Hey, welcome back to Holy Healthy Mama. I am so excited to bring you an interview today. I uh, chatted with um, Rachel Mitchell, a certified sleep specialist, uh, a couple months ago, and I felt like bringing this to the podcast. So um, let me tell you a little bit about her, and she'll explain a little bit more. But she's a certified sleep specialist, owner of My Sweet Sleeper, and you can find her at My Sleep Sweet Sleeper. And she uh, provides maternity and pediatric sleep consulting. She's a mom, and she has been featured in Motherly and the Huffington Post. So she's kind of a big deal. (laughs) I felt pretty cool talking to her. Plus, the tips she provides are so helpful for getting your little ones to sleep better. So I hope you enjoy this interview. um, And make sure you are uh, following along on Instagram at babyweight.nutritionist. Not to mention the babyweight program. You guys know that's what I do. That's my coaching. So if you have questions about that, make sure you go and shoot me a DM over on Instagram. Okay. All right. Enjoy this interview with Rachel. This is the Holy Healthy Mama podcast where moms show up to live their healthiest lives. In season two, we are going to put a hard stop to feeling uncomfortable in your skin for one day or one second longer. If you ask me, God has a beautiful plan for each and every one of us. It's time to lean into that plan, take messy action, and show the heck up for yourself. Oh, and who am I? I'm Kristen Noriega, your host, registered dietitian nutritionist, mom weight loss expert, military spouse, and mom of three. Let's do this, friend. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's just start with that. Yeah, so I, first and foremost, I'm a mama of six. Um, My husband and I, we are a blended family, but we have kiddos ranging from 21 to 2. And so we're a very busy household. They're not all in the house. We have four, uh, 10 and under, so still very busy. Um, I've been a practicing certified maternity and pediatric sleep consultant for about 10 years and started my own practice about uh, nine years ago. And I've really evolved it from, you know, being able to help families one-on-one to um, offering classes and then sort of like sprinkled in between there. I also worked um, for in, in, uh, like marketing and corporate hospitality and worked for a media company called Motherly, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. Um, and so I've been kind of all over and we live in Massachusetts, just outside of, well, about 40 minutes outside of Boston on the coast. And while my husband attends seminary here. So, um, yeah, that's a little, just a little bit about me. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. So your husband is a pastor, pastor, is that what it is? He is, he's getting his master's of divinity. So once he graduates, which will probably be another three or so years, then he will be a pastor. Yeah. Cool. And you have six kids blended, right? Yep. And you've been doing the sleep stuff for nine or 10 years. Yep. Right. Okay. What else? The other things I heard, um, I don't know. That just all sounds really cool. You have a really cool background. I can't even imagine how you got into sleep consulting. How did that happen for you? Yeah, it was really a roundabout way. And I always joke because I tell, so I actually have a program where I certify sleep consultants now, and I've been running that for a few years. 
Um, and I always tell them when I got my certification, there were like two programs. And so most people were like, what's a sleep consultant? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> so when I first started out, yeah, it was kind of like, and what you hear most from parents is, oh, I wish I would have known that there were people that do this when my babies were little type of thing, which honestly is true. So my oldest, my oldest son is about to be 11. And when, when I had him, I really, it was kind of like amongst other things that I did not know as a first time parent, sleep was so foreign to me. I really was like the type of parent that thought like, won't babies just sleep like when they're supposed to sleep? And so that was sort of what catapulted my initial interest in actually pursuing a certification. But really, it started well before that. My background is in human and child development. I always had a passion about working with specifically babies and that sort of toddler age range. And I knew I didn't want to go into education or anything like that. But when I learned there was actually a program my sort of passion of entrepreneurship and then also learning about the science of sleep and how the infant brain and the toddler brain works sort of all combined into one. And so that's sort of how my journey started. That's awesome. That's really cool. I like that you are, you have the like science part of it. It's not just like sing them and they'll be asleep, you know, like there's more to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Most people it you yeah. so raise something natural as sleep would actually end up being that natural to our bodies but there's a lot there's a lot more that goes just like with food and stuff there's a lot more that goes into it right right so i was gonna ask you if somebody has a question and they go ahead and pop it in the box below is that okay with you we do a little bit of q a as well yeah oh yeah absolutely okay I'm happy. so anybody who's watching this or if you're watching the replay or whatever let us give us your question so that we have you know you're involved in this conversation we want to make it helpful for you as you're watching this so yeah okay so let's just maybe start off with the littlest tiniest babies when we bring them home do you have any tips for those of us who are in that stage yes definitely so yeah in the newborn stage i would say that is probably when sleep feels the most overwhelming because most of us have been told like prepare to sleep and you know you're gonna have many sleepless nights but even with that preparation i really think there's nothing that can actually prepare you for the level of sleep deprivation that you feel in the newborn stage and so my we actually have a class a newborn class that i developed specifically like i really have a heart for the for moms within the fourth trimester as they just like adjust to this new normal, whether it's their first baby or second baby um, or beyond. And so my, one of my biggest passions is really giving women and, you know, just parents in general, the tools to know how to set their baby up with the healthiest sleep habits as possible from the beginning. What's so awesome about that is you have this, like this clean slate, this baby who's just adjusting to the world and they really look to you to provide for them in every way. And sleep is no different. They don't come out of the womb naturally knowing what to do with their hands and how to soothe. And these are all things that they gradually learn. So a lot of what I teach in the newborn stage is number one, to have realistic expectations. You do not want to have expectations of your newborn to like follow a rigid schedule. Um, I 
always reassure parents, you cannot spoil a newborn. So don't worry about holding them too much or don't feel like you're creating bad habits if you have to nurse them to sleep. Like all of those things are normal. So I teach what are realistic expectations versus unrealistic. And then also just to start with those really healthy habits from the beginning. So use white noise from the beginning, swaddle your baby, introduce a pacifier, prioritize the crib and bassinet as their primary sleep space, follow awake windows, follow a routine from the beginning. All of those things will just set a healthy foundation for your baby from the start. And then you can just build upon that foundation as they get older and older. Yeah, I like that realistic approach because whenever you're a first time mom and you're going to have your baby, you know, there's the books where it's like, follow these steps in order and everything's going to be fine. And then there's like the other like polar opposite end where it's like, it's going to be chaos and you can't do anything about it. So I think you are pretty middle of the road and kind of mesh those two. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. You know, unfortunately there are programs out there that in my opinion, I feel are developmentally unrealistic and they do Mm -hmm. set up parents for feeling like I'm doing all the things, you know, quote unquote, right. How come this isn't working? And I have a lot of newborn families, like clients of mine that I have to say, like, this is just normal. This is developmentally. It's the same thing as, as when a parent of toddlers, like what happened to my child? Like, why are they suddenly, you know, throwing massive tantrums all the time over the smallest things that is developmentally normal. That's just where they are emotionally in their development. And so the same thing with newborns. There are things we expect to happen that we have really no control over. And then there are some things we have a little bit of control over that we really want to set our babies up for success, but that only goes so far. Yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. This is a personal thing. (laughs) Are there really babies out there who hate being swaddled or is it kind of a hump that you have to come over? Yeah, I would say it is more of a hump you have to get through. It's more of an adjustment that you have to work through. There are definitely babies that prefer not to have their arms down. And even all the parents tell me, you don't understand, like in the in every, you know, ultrasound, baby had their hands up by their face and they came out like that and they don't want their arms down. So there are definitely babies that have preferences of being swaddled or not swaddled. However, the majority of the time, it's either the timing of when the baby's being swaddled or it's the type of swaddle that you're using um, or it's just that baby needs to get used to it because it's not, you know, it's something that's different to them. Mm -hmm. So everything's going to feel a little bit hard in the beginning. Not everything's going to click right away. And so with anything, you just have to stick with it and keep trying. Mm -hmm. And if you really find that it's like, nope, this is not working for my baby, then you can try some of the alternative swaddles that like allow for arms up or even there are, there are sleep sacks. Although I, I recommend swaddling over using a sleep sack in the newborn stage, but sometimes a sleep sack is necessary if you know, there's just a really big struggle with the swaddle. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I was just curious because I hear that sometimes and like, I have no, you know, background of this and I'm like, Oh no. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck, mom, with your little newborn because it's so hard. Hang in there. <laughs> so yeah. We had a question from Laylac87. How would you recommend to 
like, like, I don't really know what that, you said, how would you recommend a setup as an SE, sleep expert? I don't know. Um, I don't know what that means either. Maybe if she's on, she could clarify what SE means. Can you clarify uh, how, that? Like, she might mean sleep environment. How would you recommend to set up a sleep environment? Do you want to talk that, about that? Seems like <laughs> the most <laughs> logical explanation. So I can answer it as if that was the question. Let's do that. Um, so setting up a sleep environment is key from the beginning. So as I mentioned, there are a few things you can do really from the start and then sort of what you want to continue to do with your newborn and beyond, even up through toddlerhood. So uh, the biggest thing about a, a sleep environment is that it's free of distraction. It is sleep promoting. And so this is why I do not recommend TVs in the room. I don't recommend a lot of objects that are loud colors that are bright that are blinking you know nothing like that that could overstimulate the child's blackout shades because we want it as dark as possible in the room for all sleep so that includes naps um and then a crib or bassinet and that's the place where you really want your child to sleep assuming they're a, you know a, an infant and not a toddler yeah. um so yeah those are the areas of sleep environment and then staying as consistent with that sleep environment as possible I know sometimes it can be tempting to let your baby sleep, you know, in other places, which sometimes has to happen, but consistency, consistency is important with the sleep environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks for talking about that. We're just going to go with that was her question. And I think you answered that very thoroughly. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I um, saw one of our person. Yeah. The one right under it. Yeah. How to, um, a successful transition to a big bed. Okay. Let's talk about that. I have a baby who's actually like at the point where she's a climber and she's ready to climb out of her crib. And I hate this stage. I hate it. She's my third. I, and I'm like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> it never comes at the right time. Hey friend, did you know that I have a free Facebook group that's just for moms who are struggling to lose baby weight? It's packed with free trainings, meal inspiration, and first access to my drop baby weight program. This support group is full of moms who are facing the exact same struggles and frustrations as you. This is where you want to be if you are so dang ready to kick that stubborn baby weight to the curb and you're needing some additional support. So head over to bit.ly slash holy healthy mama. That's bit.ly slash holy healthy mama. So as you listen to the rest of this episode, head to that Facebook group and get started. Thanks for listening. It never comes at the right time, right? It's always like, even if you know it's coming and your child is approaching that age, you're kind of like, no, this can't be happening. Um, yeah, I actually have a blog about this on our on our website that I, I sort of lay out the, the suggestions of, you know, there's not a magic age. But if your child is under two, definitely do everything you can to keep your baby in that crib because developmentally it's going to be really hard to transition them to a big boy or big girl bed and have them really understand that concept. Um, so if your child is under two, I would, there's a few things you can do. You can make sure your mattress is dropped all the way to the ground to make sure that it's not elevated and making it easy for them to climb out. 
You can also turn the crib around so that the highest part of the crib is in the front and not the back, which is most of us have, you know, most cribs do have a higher part. Um, that's what we did with our daughter when she started trying to get out at like 18 months. Um, and then you can also just keep putting your child back in your crib and telling them, nope, it's time to go back in. It's time to sleep. Try to make sure like nothing's around the crib where they can step onto like a rocking chair or something that makes it easy for them to get out. Okay. Um, and if you've done all those things and your child's still climbing out, it definitely reaches a point where you're like, okay, let's just transition because it can become a safety hazard at that point. There are some things you can do actually that seem kind of counterintuitive, but could help with the process. So there are sometimes when I have parents actually put their kids in a pack and play for a short amount of time, because believe it or not, it can be harder to climb out of a pack and play. Um, and also it can help the child get used to being lower to the ground and having a bit more freedom. So sometimes I will recommend that depending on the situation. Um, but otherwise, once it's like, okay, we're going to really make this this toddler bed happen. I just recommend trying to make it as exciting of a process as possible. So letting your child be a part of the process of picking it out, picking out the bedding, make it like a family affair, make it something that's really exciting. And then, you know, go in there with them the first night, try to get them acclimated. Do I recommend starting at night and not necessarily for naps because their sleep drive will be higher at night. And then just kind of make a plan of how you're going to keep the child in, in that space. Because once they find their newfound freedom, it's like, oh, I can just get out of this bed whenever I want. So you want to make sure the room is safety proofed, of course, and that you have a plan of what to do if your child's getting out of the bed. Okay. But make sure that you're not transitioning prematurely, because I do see that happens quite a bit. Okay, so try to hold out until two as much as you can. Consider if they are climbing out, maybe using the pack and play in some situations. Um, make sure the room is safe. Uh, oh, you also said turn the crib around. Unfortunately, yeah. mine is just like flat all across. Yeah, like, some cribs are like so that. Like, oh, dang. <laughs> um, and then make make sure it's safe. Okay. Yeah. 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 It can be it can be a little bit like feel like a scary transition, but with anything, your child will adapt as long as you're consistent and you have a plan, like go into it with a plan and not just don't try, try not to just wing it because this can be one of those big transitions that you find yourself in the middle of and you're like, Oh my gosh, we did not have a plan. What do we do now? We have no plan and there's no going back. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's look at another question. Will nights become longer once my baby's down to one nap? Good Great. question. In most cases, no. It does depend on the child, though. So I know that's not like that's not the exciting answer. But no, if nights will usually stay where they've been, regardless of what happens with naps. So typically, if your child's an 11 hour night sleeper, that will continue unless your child does end up making up for missed sleep at night, which can happen. When your child transitions to one nap, you do want to make sure they're still getting adequate day sleep. So I like to see at least an hour and a half and a max of usually two and a half hours. Some children can handle a three-hour nap, like our daughter takes a three-hour nap, but sometimes it affects their night sleep. So I would just make sure they have an adequate nap length throughout the day. 
And if you find that your child's night sleep doesn't change at all, then that's actually pretty common, but it could, it could adjust slightly. Um, it just depends on the child. Okay. Yeah. That's like with like weight loss. I'm always like, well, it depends on you. It depends on you. It's like, it really, (laughs) it really depends on the child. And the thing is there are some things that happen when you transition to one nap. Typically you'll move bedtime slightly earlier. So that could end up resulting in more night sleep or it could end up resulting in an earlier wake up. It just depends on the child. Okay. Okay. So, um, whoever asked that question, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we had another one, how to deal with eight month old sitting up in cot at nap and bedtime cries. If she goes in to lay down with him and is overtired, taking up to 40 minutes to fall asleep just sounds kind of problematic. Yeah. Um, so my opinion is you do not need to go in and lay your child down every time they sit up. That's actually a skill we want your child to learn how to do on their own. And if we're going in and doing that for them each time, then they're going to struggle to, to learn how to do that on their own. So there may be some times when that's necessary, as you mentioned, if it is taking your child a really long time to fall asleep and then they end up, they end up missing their nap, which could also be because they're going down overtired. So I'd, I'd look at their awake windows and see if you need to shorten those a bit. But most of the time you don't need to do that, especially if they cry when you go in and it makes them more upset. You probably just need to allow them to figure that out on their own. Yeah. And then circle back up around to Rachel's other tips of create the environment that supports the sleep, use the blackout curtains, get that noise machine going, make it as easy as possible on your little one. (laughs) Yes, exactly. There's so many things to think about when it, I mean, short naps is probably the, the biggest, that and night wakings are probably the biggest topics that I get asked about. And there's so many things that go into it. The sleep environment is key, just like you mentioned, but there are a lot of other areas you have to look at, like the awake windows, like I mentioned, the child's nutrition, the routine, like if they have the ability to self-soothe. So, you know, it's, there's many different areas you want to kind of take a look at, but, but as I mentioned, you don't necessarily have to intervene every time to lay the child back down. Good to know. That's got to be helpful for some moms who feel like, you know, they just got to do everything and be everything for the baby. Cause we all want to do that. But sometimes what I hear you saying is just kind of back off and trust that they're going to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? Something I talk about a lot. So my method of sleep teaching is very different than a lot of sleep consultants. Uh, about five years ago, I developed a method where I use sleep profiles, which is um, I really found that babies tend to fall into three sort of categories of the type of sleeper, kind of like the Enneagram for sleep. So the attached sleeper, sensitive sleeper, and adaptable sleeper. And I find that, especially if your child is a sensitive sleeper, the more you intervene, the more stimulating it is for the child. And so understanding what, you know, sort of the natural characteristics of your baby, like an attached sleeper, that might actually be what they need. They might need that intervention. But understanding that, and you can actually go on our website and take that quiz to, to get an idea of what uh, category your baby falls into. But our youngest daughter is a, is a very sensitive sleeper. So even though sometimes it went against my natural intuition to want to go in 
and intervene. If I did, it made it so much worse. And so there were some times when I had to just step back. And when I did, I was like, oh, figured it out. I just have to give her the opportunity to do that. So it's important to kind of know are you know, really important to know our babies and their natural characteristics and make sure we're not interrupting the process of self-soothing. I love that. Um, so if anybody, like, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, it's kind of like assigning yourself a number or somebody a number just to help you better understand what you're feeling, your characteristics, your tendencies. So what you've done, Rachel, is kind of just categorize your kids into or kids, babies, into what they're, what they might need most, you know, their general tendencies and what they're going to need. I think that's so cool. So is that kind of the basis of your method? You go off of those categories? It is. And it's really not to box anyone in to say your child is exactly like this because all children are still so individual. And we really actually don't see these prominent traits until about four months old. So under four months, we still sort of consider all babies in that newborn stage. And they haven't really shown us, they maybe have shown us a little bit, but not too much. But yeah, that's really where I start with babies that are four months, because if I were to tell a parent, do this method, like pick up, put down, just as an example, where you pick a baby up, rock them, put them back down, pick them up, back down. And they're a sensitive sleeper that's going to do the opposite effect. That's going to make them overstimulated. And then the parent's going to be like, what is happening? This is making my baby angry or this is worse. This isn't helping at all. Um, so I need to know because if the baby is a sensitive sleeper, that's not going to be effective for them. Whereas if the baby was an attached sleeper, that's probably the most effective method for them. Um, And I see that very consistently with babies across the board is that if we give them blanket advice just based on, oh, well, this worked for this baby, then they're going to get frustrated when it doesn't work for their own child. And that's just because all babies have a really unique set of patterns. And even if they identify with one certain category, just like the Enneagram, they're still going to have characteristics of other categories. And that's expected. So we still have to be flexible and understand that babies aren't robots. They're ever changing all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I I really like this part of this conversation because I also feel like this totally applies to what I do. Like you can't just count calories because Sally did it and Sally had success. Like you're a unique person. You have your own things going on, your preferences, you know, whether, whether that might be like sweets or your the cuddly blanket that you like as a baby, but like got to honor the people and the individual person. So I think your approach sounds really, I I really like that. That's cool. Yeah. And I actually use the analogy a lot. I'm like, it's why my husband and I can both do the whole 30 and he'll lose like 20 pounds. And I lose like two because the way we metabolize food, the way that we, our bodies respond to you know, minimizing certain foods and increasing others is different. It's very different. And sometimes it means like he had that weight to lose and I didn't have that weight to lose. So it's just, it's when we don't take an individualized approach, I really find it just sets both the child and the parent up for either unrealistic expectations or they are disappointed 
or yeah. even defeated because they, and I'm sure you experienced that too in your line of work where people feel like, how come I'm not seeing any progress, right? Yeah. And it could be because the approach they're taking is not what's actually right for their body or for them mm-hmm. as an individual. Yeah, for sure. Like calories in, calories out. Why is this not working? I'm eating very little. All right, I put my baby down. Why is she not sleeping? You know, I, I turned the crib around. Why is this still not working? Cause, yeah, Cause there's a lot more at play than just like that one thing. That one thing is just the tip of the iceberg. And it takes, yeah. often it takes some support to really uncover that and figure it out and do, do right by that individual unique person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you really feel that we need to know? We be moms who just want our babies and kids to sleep. (laughs) There's so much that I want you to know. Um, You know, I think aside and sort of, I guess it does go along with what we've discussed is that there so often I get asked the question, when should I start sleep training? At what age can I start sleep training? And this, this thought of sleep training is something that happens in my opinion, way too quickly before other things that need to happen first. Mm-hmm. So especially when I'm training my other sleep consultants, I talk so much about setting those foundations of sleep. If, if you have a sleep training method, so for example, if you decide I'm going to, I'm going to do the Ferber method where I gradually have my baby try to self-soothe for certain periods of time. I go in the room, I wait a certain amount of time between check-ins, but your baby's overtired every single night because their awake windows are too long. That's never going to be effective. So when we talk about the foundations of sleep, we talk about four key areas that you need you need to address before you even think about starting to sleep train, and that's nutrition and their feeding, their routine, both for naps and bedtime, their sleep environment, and awake windows and their sleep schedule. So if any of those things are out of place, sleep training is either going to be very short-lived, like you might see initial progress, but the moment your baby goes through a regression or a progression, they're going to go right back to where they were before. Or you see no initial progress because, like I said, your child could be overtired every single night that they're going down. And you're missing that because you're focused so much on this sleep training method. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually find that when we go back to those four key areas, we can minimize the need for sleep training because we've actually gotten to the root of the issue instead of just treating, you know, the wake up or treating the symptom is sort of what we call it. In many cases, you can have like perfect sleep foundations and the child still wakes up and you still need to have some type of method of how you're approaching that. But that's not always the case. And so, so important that parents understand that it's not all about sleep training. It's more about that healthy foundation of sleep and making sure your child's sleep habits are in place, good sleep habits are in place first. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that final thought about those four like key areas. Appreciate that. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I sure had a great time talking to Rachel. I hope you find it helpful. And I would love to hear from you. If you are listening to the podcast, please let me know. I have no idea. <laughs> Find me on Instagram or 
had even take a screenshot of this episode and you know, post it to your stories and tag me at babyweight.nutritionist, I would so appreciate hearing from you. Okay, hope you have a great day. Talk to you later.